0: Welcome to the Tales of Mythic Adventure podcast, coming to you from distant shores with your hosts, Jeff and Mob.
1: Well, welcome to another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. I'm Jeff Richard.
2: And I'm Michael O'Brien, also known as Mob. Good afternoon, evening or morning, Jeff. How are you going? Well,
1: I'm, ve- I'm very confused on on whether it's morning, afternoon, evening or night because there seems to be a solar eclipse going on here in Berlin.
0: Ooh, But what do you mean seems to be?
1: Well, <laughs> I, given that there are temporal anomalies from when this uh, uh, podcast is recorded and when we're actually listening to it, but when you actually are listening to it, there probably isn't a solar eclipse going on in Berlin. Okay. Just, just to warn our our listeners.
2: Yes, because we, we are we are technically not going out live. That that is absolutely correct. So, uh, Jeff, you're in Berlin. I'm here in Melbourne, Australia, and our producer Rob is also uh,
0: here in the background as well. How are you going, not Rob? So much in the background already. Hello, guys. How are you? We so are I good. assume
1: that where you guys are in Australia, the mighty wolf spirit is not devouring the sun. Arachna Solara has not spun her web to uh, pin it into place. The
0: doomed conjunction is not occurring. Uh, that might be happening, but it's, it's it's night time, so we can't we can't see. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, solar eclipses aren't as much fun at night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, they aren't. They aren't. Well, it 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 was. It's mostly over now. It was nifty, but it was not... Um, the wolf really didn't manage to bite much out of the sun today.
2: Somebody somewhere has obviously uh, com- performed the right sacrifices and uh, stopped anything bad happening.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the the, the the fact that nothing bad happened is proof that the Aztecs went just a little too far in their sacrifices.
2: Yeah, they were, they were pretty good at just taking things a bit too far, weren't they?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it's human sacrifice on a massive scale. is not necessary to end a solar eclipse.
2: They also had that um, that game, didn't they? They played with the um, the rubber ball where...
1: Oh, yeah, they had ball courts. Uh, as, that was everywhere in Mesoamerica. The Mayans, the Aztecs. I can't remember the name of the ball game, but it was an awesome ball game.
2: Now, and... I understand that um, some sources say the winning team got sacrificed and some teams say the losing team got sacrificed. That's not a very good way to build up a, uh, a league system around Mesoamerica, is it?
0: Well,
1: maybe the actual league takes place in the afterlife. You know, Maybe the recruiting team... Maybe this mundane uh, existence where the first round of ball playing takes place is only in, you know, our, our plane of existence is only the Junior League, and that you don't really get to be in the professional leagues until you've been sacrificed. Ah, to, you know,
2: there's a Super the, Bowl the going on in the afterlife, wow. Oh, yeah.
1: absolutely. Yeah, so, so you know, that's where really all the awesome players are.
2: So I and wonder, is, is Jeff, is, is there a game like that going on somewhere in Glorantha? There has to be somewhere, doesn't there?
1: Oh, I I would not be surprised at all. That sounds like the sort of thing that I could imagine in Fonrit or uh, the Kingdom of Ignorance or uh, pretty much. Well, we could put it almost anywhere outside of the the most heavily explored areas.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, and that that is a wonderful segue, Jeff, onto what we're going to talk about today. Oh, what
1: are we going to talk about today,
2: Mark? Well. We thought it would be a great idea to talk about the fact that Jeff, you are now the creative director of Moon Design Publications, and Moon Design Publications spends uh, a lot of its time exploring Glorantha.
1: That's what my job is. Yeah, my job is to to explore Glorantha, write about it, uh, make sure that we have a consistent vision for the look of Glorantha and to, um, as we're beginning now, to uh, work with other writers and other game developers to just basically make sure that, that we're exploring Glorantha on a a much bigger scale than we had in previous decades.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, as, as I, I guess most of our listeners would know, Glorantha was the creation of Greg Stafford, and uh,
1: Greg discovered, as Greg puts it, he discovered Glorantha back in 1966.
2: No, but this is before role-playing games? This, uh, is,
1: this is definitely before um, the uh, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax period.
2: In fact, I understand, um, Greg Stafford bought, I think was it, the second ever copy of Dungeons & Dragons. That's the story I've heard.
1: Be- I don't know if it was the second ever. I think he may have been the very first person to buy a copy. And he bought it directly from the printer.
2: Oh, yes. Yes. In fact, he (coughs) bought it from uh, right in the print shop. And uh, it's because Greg was working as a belt buckle salesman at the time, I believe.
1: I believe so. I it was, believe
2: so. The- it was in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. It, it, isn't it amazing that the, the it, it just converged that way?
1: Lake Geneva, Wisconsin was a was a, a clearly a place where all of the magical ley lines crossed. Right at this one point in time, you had Gygax Arneson, you had Greg Stafford, all in the same little place at the same time. Uncanny. And even if they weren't working, yeah. Even if they weren't doing stuff uh, together, because uh, uh, I know Greg wasn't doing anything with those guys. He was. Um, I, I he in actually... fact,
2: in fact, to be completely accurate, I believe it was a friend of Greg's that was at the print shop that picked up the game and brought it to Greg.
1: I, I do not know if it was a friend who picked up the game or if it was Greg who was there with a friend and picked up a copy, thinking it looked neat. Yeah, I, that, that's one we've got to ask Greg about.
2: Yep. So uh, that was uh, in <laughs> that's going back an awful long time, and Greg had this uh, this this world in his head.
1: Yeah, and he had been writing stories about it in the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, couldn't get it published by any of the anthologies or magazines that he submitted it to. You know, this is that's back in the days when if you had a cool fantasy short story, you know, you would submit it to um, uh, magazines mm-hmm. like Playboy because people did actually read Playboy for the articles. Uh, as as uh, cliche as that may sound, <laughs> uh, and and. You know, that's that was the normal way that you would you would get a fantasy idea out, and Greg couldn't get it published, and then had the idea of creating a board game set in Glorantha, mm-hmm. and initially the initial version of the board game was going to be um, set in uh, Sachnella. Ah, because this program. is
2: where quite a lot of his early fiction was based, too, wasn't it? In where, where all
1: of the... Uh, yeah, the, the, the original places that Greg explored in Glorantha were Seshnella, Rallios, uh, uh, Lascombe, Pameltella, Teshnos, and Kralorella. And, and the,
2: isn't it fascinating, then, that in fact, then the focus for Glorantha shifted elsewhere... Cool. Yeah,
1: when he wrote, when he wrote his, when he did the second version of the board game, because the first version he didn't really enjoy the play the play of, he scrapped the idea of it being in Clarantha and um, set it in this mythical place called Dragon Pass, where there would be um, a moon worshipping uh, empire against uh, a bunch of storm worshipping uh, city states or something like that, and for the basic story. Um, of the conflict, he borrowed from Glorantha the character um, Ar Argat or Argrat, oh.
2: um,
1: who was a figure who fought against. Uh, he was a, a, a Brethene turned Seshnelen turned just awesome hero who fought against an evil god called uh, a, I think it was gabagi uh, was how it was in the earlier stories. Mm-hmm. And Greg just, uh, uh, rewrote that story a little bit and named the new, um, lead figure Argrath. And that was the story of Prince Argrath, is Argrath was, uh, uh a, 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 uh, reinterpretation of his Aragrat, um, or Argrath stories. And I'm glad and he did it should...
2: reinterpret because Argrath does sound much cooler, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> well, okay, then I gets, what, what, what I found interesting in this, is so you have Argrath comes in, and then it, then he decides after playing around with this, that you know, he's going to put this in Glorantha anyways, and start using the name of the various Gloranthan gods uh, and Gloranthan figures. And so the Lunar Empire and Dragon Pass ended up becoming set in Glorantha. Uh, and and so that was the 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 origin um, of most of what we know in Glorantha was a, a more or less last minute decision by Greg to set the game White Bear and Red Moon in his Glorantha setting.
2: Wow! And then,
1: yeah, and then um, when he started developing the history of Glorantha, he decided to put these to put the story of. Um, Aragrat or Argrat, he had a bunch of different spellings for this guy. Greg's spelling is often not terribly consistent, and he became Arcat. No um, other was
0: Shakespeare's, <laughs> no,
1: yes, exactly. So, the Arcat character and the Argrath character are the same character, and then Greg realized, oh, you know, there's some really cool mythic resonance by having, um, yeah, you know, this hero Arcat in the first age. And then we have this hero, Argrath, in the third age, and they're really pretty much all the same hero. Uh,
2: Well, they're certainly shaken up the world, aren't they?
1: Exactly, exactly. But anyways, that that was um, White Bear Red Moon, and then it was only, I think, a year or so later that Greg was introduced to Steve Perrin. Um, with the idea of creating a role-playing game set in Glorantha. They had played the Arduin Grimoire before that, and, and I think gave up on it under the concluding that it just didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And they, um, uh, Greg met up with, uh, was introduced to Steve Perrin, and Steve Perrin had a bunch of ideas for making a role-playing game, and voila... Uh, next thing you know, you have RuneQuest.
2: The rest is history, and you and know the what? The rest is history. I I, I now want to because we we could we could we could keep talking f- through the decades, but I want to move all the way forward now to to the last several years.
1: <clears throat> sure.
2: So, can you tell us a little bit about the process of uh, Greg passing on the flame? I guess you could say to. Well, basically
1: you, Jeff. Well, Greg Greg more or less um, uh, entered into semi-retirement after the publication of Hero Wars. Mm-hmm. And Greg and I had, in the late 90s and throughout the 2000s, Greg and I were still working on stories together but Greg wasn't doing the whole uh, doing a lot of writing for any of the histories material that was mainly um, freelancers and volunteers and in 2007 I moved to Berlin and Two th- Rick,
2: 2007
1: 2000, Yeah
2: Wow, you know, I keep thinking in my mind it was only a few years ago you went to to Berlin. Wow,
1: That's yeah. It was two thousand and seven. It was quite a long time ago, and uh, Rick and Greg and I talked, and we wanted to do we wanted to do a new version of HeroQuest, a second edition, mm-hmm. because we were all unsatisfied with uh, um, HeroQuest first edition rules. And we hired Robin Laws, who was also not very happy with what had happened to his original draft uh, in of of Hero Wars, because a whole lot of things that really made no sense for the rules got added into the rules. Mm-hmm. And so we hired Robin and told him, Robin, you know, do Hero Quest the way you want it done, and we're going to publish that. And at, near the end, I, I, we we decided that we would add in some Floranthen rules. And I ended up taking the lead on that, and then um, started writing with Greg the um, the Kingdom of Heaven book or a Kingdom of Heroes book, and it just ended up where I started taking a lot of Greg's material old material, working it and getting it into print. And meanwhile, at this point, Greg had um, entered, you know, Greg had, had fully retired, and we. Um, Greg had at that point turned all the editorial functions over to me with uh, Isseries and Moon Design. And then we uh, uh, talked with Greg and we just uh, decided that we would uh, just flat out purchase the rights to Glorantha from Greg, and Greg and I. Um, and Rick and Neil, we all talked, and Greg was very comfortable with having us um, uh, take over the duties of publishing and editing and creative control and so forth. And I think that was two... Was that two years ago? Do you remember, more? Yeah,
2: it's a couple of years ago. So, I mean, this this must have been a, a really, really big step on Greg's part, because... Oh, I... This is something that he has had uh, more or less ultimate creative control over since 1966, and he's he's handed it over to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, which was a great honor, and it was very, very flattering. And uh, the first thing that we came out with under you know um, after the transfer had been was the guide to Glorantha. And uh, Okay, wait, which,
2: so you, you set the bar pretty high, I'm going to have to say.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, the, 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 the Guide to Gloranta is the sort of book that Greg had been wanting to publish since he came up with the idea of the setting back in the...
2: Well, in I mean, that, that, book, that book is effectively totally took, inside his head, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, yes, I mean... There were a lot of there have been a lot of writers that have uh, shaped large segments of the world you know not just myself but also uh, Sandy Peterson uh, which is why you know the the Guide to Laranha is by Greg Stafford Sandy Peterson myself because the three of us I think have had the most impact on defining the setting mm-hmm. but there's been a lot of other writers that have, uh, been very heavily involved in defining um, uh, one, two, or more sections and in areas, including yourself. Uh, Sun County, there are certainly references to, you, to your material in the uh, Wasteland section. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ken Rolston uh, did a huge amount of work with Sandy Peterson in developing uh, Duraster. And Nick Brook. With uh, Carmania and um, a lot of the, the aspects of the lunar uh, the lunar empire, and so forth and so on. I mean, a lot of people have put their their uh, Colin Driver with the amazing uh, map with warrior. the map with the ma- and the the really remarkable thing about those maps, just as a detour, is uh, in. Genertella, with the exception of Teshnos, Kralorella, and the Kingdom of Ignorance. All of that was just taken directly off hand-drawn maps that Greg had made that had never seen uh, the light of publication except bits and pieces. So if you bought Trollpack way back in the the day, the map of Degori Incarth is a snippet of Greg's hand-drawn maps. Mm Mm-hmm. So that 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 the north, the western two thirds of the northern continent all came from Greg's hand drawn maps. After that, uh, our, it, it became the Jeff and Colin show because there just was not a tremendous amount of material that had been done outside of that. And uh, in some ways, it made it easier to to make the maps because we didn't have to go through. Uh, Page after page of hand-drawn map and reconcile them, but on the other hand, it meant there was an immense amount of work in just figuring out anything beyond the most vague details.
2: Mm. And this this guide to Glorantha as the, as the first ever product is 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 huge. I mean, we've already talked about how it's. Uh, I think it was the heaviest role-playing supplement to have come out that year. Um, possibly challenged by... I mean, God's War came out the year after, didn't it? So,
1: Yes, but this is just what... I mean, the, thing, the, the guide is an immense book. It's an encyclopedia for the setting. And what it... it what From a writer's point of view and a creative director's point of view is so important about it is it lets us get rid of the problem of quote-unquote gregging.
2: You mm-hmm. know,
1: everything that's... It creates an encyclopedia... That um, if I want to know what is in a particular place, I can turn to that and say, okay, this is canon. We don't change anything that's in here unless we have an awfully good reason. Mm -hmm. And, And we have to be very explicit about, you know, we have an awfully good reason, and that awfully good reason is, oops, I said... So and so is from Village A, but really he's from Village B. Oops, that's my mistake. And 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 you know that sort of thing might be made, but there won't become a a um, you know. Oh, by the way, here's the the god the sun god of the Orlanthe. Yeah, bet you guys didn't know that there was one. Um,
2: so what you're yeah, saying is you're going to try to avoid as far as possible. Any sort of retconning uh, after Correct. this, what's, yeah.
1: What's in the guide is canon, and to, and to the extent changes are made to uh, material in the guide, one, it's going to be minor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, very very minor stuff, and two, there's got to be it's got to be a conscious decision um, where we really think about it, and the few times that anybody has made suggestions. I've said no already. And, and these were just really minor things. Um, and I, I, I think it, one involved the location of where the butterfly princess, uh, who is an extremely minor figure from uh, the history of the Lunar Empire, is from. And it's quite clear in the guide that she's from Darjeen, And so that's where she's going to be from is Darjean mm-hmm. and not place um, else. And these are the level of little minor, you know, once upon a time fights about um, uh, changes to the setting, you know, big parts of the setting would just get changed willy-nilly, mainly because it was, you know, no one even knew that they were changing parts of the setting. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. Well, of course, and there were great uh, arguments and things fought across uh, internet digests, the different ones that have existed over over the years as well, weren't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. And so the idea with the guide is, is we have a, a, a complete encyclopedia of the entire setting. And that creates a foundation for all future work on Glorantha. And and one of the biggest complaints that people have had about Glorantha as a setting is, oh, it's constantly, you know, it's, what what is true is constantly being changed in it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, the... The Lunar Empire, as described in the Isseries books, uh, doesn't line up at all with the Lunar Empire as described in the Red Line History or the Genertella box set, Um, so forth and so on. And with the guide, first off, you don't have to to go through uh, and hunt down publications that have been out of print for over 30 years in order to figure out what something is. You just go to the guide, you looked at the section of the Lunar Empire, and what's in the Lunar Empire section is how it's going to be in future publications. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're going to be writing a supplement, and you want to have some sort of obscure reference to something, you just go to the guide and find your obscure reference. And that has made my job as being a creative director infinitely easier in order to, to maintain consistency... Um, Throughout all anticipated publications,
2: mm-hmm. so it's it's like um, a TV series will often have a Bible, won't it? Which yes, which which has what all the details are, and and they try really hard not to not to change those details, uh, except sometimes they do, I suppose. But um, it's it's a bit like that, isn't it? It's it's
1: uh, that's exactly what its purpose is. It, its purpose is to be the Bible of Glorantha, and by having a Bible uh of of what is canon it actually i find it frees up the creative process
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's a lot easier for you if if you know this is what you have to work with then it's a lot easier that you can create stuff and you can create new things that as long as it doesn't contradict what's in there, you have a lot of free reign.
2: So let me let me let me pose a devil's advocate type question, Jeff. Sure. How how do you then stop the material becoming ossified?
1: Well, uh, uh, a lot of ways. Um, one of the you know one way is, of course, to, to uh, Go and and move where the focus is to new locations. Now, granted, for the last uh, fifteen years or so, we've had a very strongly Dragon Pass um, uh, focus. So well, uh, well, I think
2: that. I think you could kind of argue that uh, Dragon Pass and Prax have really been the key focus of of uh, of Glorantha. Since 1978, really.
1: Yes, and so one way to keep things from being ossified, of course, is to to move that spotlight around, which we will be doing. But uh, the other big way that we plan to to um, shake things up a little bit is one of the problems with Glorantha in terms of writing in the last fifteen, actually, last I'd say last over the last twenty years has been not only has the spotlight been almost entirely on Sartar and uh, Prax, and by Prax, really, I should be saying the River of Cradles, yep. because there's been surprisingly little done about Prax itself, but on Sartar and uh, the River of Cradles, in this unbelievably narrow time frame of 1618 to 1621, so, for instance, the guide is set in uh, the beginning of 1621. It's a it's an encyclopedia of the setting, uh, from the time time point of 1621, with lots of sections, uh, little box texts showing uh, or, or or describing how things will be changing over the next several years in there. But yeah, still it
2: kind of it kind of hints or well, or maps really out some things, doesn't that. it?
1: Yeah. What?
2: It kind of maps and hints out some things that are going to happen over the yes. next few years.
1: Yeah, but in 1977, RuneQuest Two came out. What 1977, right? Yep. <laughs> the setting was 1618 to
2: 1621. Yeah, and, all,
1: in, and also, and, in also in 1978, and so for instance, the in the the Pavis book. Which was nineteen, I think eighty one. Does that sound right?
2: About that, yeah.
1: Uh, the setting for the Cradle Adventure in the Pavis book was C season sixteen twenty one. So since nineteen eighty one, we have been in the same damn year, and that's really ossified the setting, because people. People just revisit the same characters over and over and over again in the same one-year time frame. Over and over and over again. And even during the Isserius Sardar Rising period, they barely went um, two years into it. Barely right. went two years into it. And so one of the ways And, and Jeff were... Jeff the other thing that just
2: going back to 1978 was if you remember RuneQuest the whole idea about creating a character was you were going to make them powerful and strong so they could fight in the Hero Wars.
1: Right and 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 the Hero Wars is that board game that Greg made back in 1976 the Dragon Pass board game mm-hmm. which um, that was the whole idea of the setting uh, of, of RuneQuest was to make characters so that they could participate in the events described in the the, the war game. We just I, never quite uh, got there. <laughs> no, no. Forty years later, forty years later, and we're still in the same sixteen twenty one. So one of the things that we're doing right now, and that I've been doing, is. With the Glorantha sourcebook that will be coming out uh, later this summer, we are moving the setting forward officially to 1627. And although that doesn't seem like a whole lot if you're not paying attention, if you're not, you know, been playing in Glorantha games, moving the setting forward six years doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. But in terms of of hardcore Glorantha files that is moving the setting dramatically in a new direction. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, so with the new default setting, uh, Sartor is free. Pavis, new Pavis, is, it has been liberated, and there's a king of Pavis. Um, there are no Lunars in Prax or the uh, River of Kratos. Well,
0: not
2: living so ones. <laughs> yeah, not
1: living ones. Uh, there's no living lunars left in um, in Sartar. Uh, Aldertur is, um, you know, uh, part of the kingdom of Sartar. Uh, the Holy Country, well, there's no lunars there either. Uh, you know, it's a huge change, and it gets rid of what I think had been a problem uh, with how people wrote and conceived about uh, Glorantha is it had become for thirty years a rerun of Braveheart, over and over and over again.
2: And uh, Jeff, um, the, the the new metaphor we've gone from Braveheart to what's a metaphor that could possibly resonate with a modern audience that people would well, would understand. Well,
1: there's more game of there's a lot more Game of Thrones going on. Yeah. You don't you don't have it's not an obvious um, case where you have um, you know the 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 poor oppressed Sardarites. Um, under the heel
2: of the lunas.
1: Exactly. The Sardarites the Sartorites now, you know, first off, they that they've overthrown the Lunars in uh, Sardar and Much of Dragon Pass, but they're on the offensive. And and you know they're no longer they're no longer a bunch of plucky rebels. Um, they've just um, you know they they put their plucky rebel leader as as Princess Sartar Caller Starbrow, and she lasted a year. Mm-hmm. She was a fiasco, uh, and got killed in battle. And Sartar almost fell apart into to being nothing but a a disorganized bunch of bickering tribes, which would have meant that they would have um, quickly been reconquered by the Lunar Empire. Uh, and so instead, they, they've, gambled, uh, they've gambled high. They've, they've, they've uh, uh, bet the bank on uh, Argrath as their new prince. And Argrath is not a plucky rebel. Argrath is a a very different sort of figure. He's not been in Sartre for uh, a decade and a half. Not since he was a little more than a boy. And he views the world differently. He does all sorts of things that an Orlanthe is not supposed to do. His uh, ally is uh, Herrick the Berserk, who's not exactly a nice guy. He's got Lunars in um, in his ring. Uh, after after having every lunar in New Pavis murdered, he then brought lunars into his governing ring. So it's not that he's trying to make an accommodation. He's just doing things in a very strange. Um, well, way. well,
2: Jeff, he's a he's a world changing figure, just like someone similarly named back exactly. in the first age.
1: Exactly, he's he's an archetypal figure. He is um, he's a very dangerous person whose grand goals are largely unknown, and he's the he- he's the unquestioned prince of Sartar.
2: So uh, I think the other the other really interesting thing about moving this time frame forward, Jeff, is one. Old characters, characters whose names have come up time and again in that thirty years, new things happen to them. Some good, in many cases, bad.
1: Oh yeah, we we've killed off a lot. Yeah. Of the the uh like like George uh, George Martin, we've killed off an <laughs> awful lot of fan favorites.
2: And there are new characters that are introduced as, as well. As well.
1: Yeah, well, there are a lot of new characters, um, you know. Besides, and and there are some old characters that you that everybody knew about from the board game, but no one had ever seen them in the setting. Um, uh, yeah, no, and I and are,
2: and you've had you've had some fun trying to interpret what um, a weird squiggle on a little cardboard counter actually is. Yes, we
1: have, we have. <laughs> but yeah, the list—it's been. I mean, this is one of the things that is. Fun in um, uh, when you're writing. At times, it's fun killing off characters. You know, I and and there's a lot of things you get a lot of change to the storylines when what had seemed to be one of the principal pro- protagonists is is gone and dead, and mm-hmm. that's happened. Um, now in the setting, you know, throughout the Lunar Empire, throughout Dragon Pass, throughout the Holy Country, it's it's even made its way down to Sun County, where uh, I, I'm afraid Count Solanthos is no more, and he's not the only one of the four um, major figures from the Sun County book that is no more. <laughs>
2: well, Jeff, um, as as you know, I've I've uh... I have very much enjoyed the creative process working uh working with you to just work out what happens between uh sixteen twenty one and sixteen twenty seven and there's there's just so much to throw in there and yes, everything gets mixed up. The other really fun part of that was and this is something that um a book like The Guide to Glorantha enables you to do, is rather than writing about stuff that happens in isolation there are world spanning events going on a uh, you know cataclysms and and whatever one f- such example is the dragon rise where it's 1625 isn't it a yes how how big is that that dragon it's it's pretty huge it's like 10 Several miles long or something whatever
1: no, it's uh, it's several miles long at the least. I don't know I don't know how we would measure it from from tip to snout, but uh if I recall uh when it rose it created a canyon um either 10 or 20 miles long.
2: Yeah, and it also like uh ate, um <laughs> most of the uh important figures in the lunar uh provincial army and uh, administration devoured the Temple of the Reaching Moon, destroyed the city, and then took off. And then took off. Now, and, then the f-
1: took off and, and this is a thing as big, if you think about it, it's as big as Mount Karafin.
2: Yeah, yikes. So, yeah. so <laughs> what I had a lot of fun doing was, okay, so that happens in Dragon Pass, but something that big that rises out of the sky... Is going to scare the living daylights out of anybody who can see that happening in distant places. So you've got to interpret it, what happens to them.
1: Yeah, and that uh, again, it's a ten. Let's just let's just say it's eight miles long. Okay. For for uh, uh, sake of discussion, so you have this eight mile long thing in the sky. So uh, uh, And Glorantha is a flat world, so you don't have... Although, you know, it's not... Light doesn't move exactly the same for, for reasons that you and I have discussed. Light does not move in precisely the same way as it does in the real world uh, in Glorantha. So, um, nonetheless, from Glamour, you could see this.
2: Yeah. You see this you... dragony shape rising up. And depending on where you are, for for example, in Sun County, and they've got long, deep, and abiding um, uh, connections to to dragons. And this figure rises up. So I, I, I had a lot of fun working with you, Jeff, on on how they interpret what happens there.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, from Sun County, this thing would be very visible. I, in it fact, is- I think I
2: even had it—the shock wave would uh, pass through as well and knocked over a couple of retirement towers.
1: I think it would, of <laughs> course. I mean, you, you, the, this is a huge, huge event. And and now, you think it was bad in Sun County, imagine how this would be greeted in Sartar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what, what I like about the fact that the guide and all this mapped out is you can now... You can now talk about what happens anywhere where this would have been... Yeah, every Everybody that witnessed this is going to have their own story and their own reaction to it and what they did to to cope or to to hide or to, to fight it or whatever. And I think that's, that's a really exciting thing. A similar thing, Jeff, was
1: uh, the wind stop. Yes, and this was one of the most controversial things that Greg had thrown in. Is that when White Wall fell at the end of sixteen twenty one? Uh, part of the what the Lunars were trying to do was to chain the god Orland in the in, in the underworld to put him back in his prison, mm-hmm. and um, what that had a practical effect of is ki- is effectively killing the god Orland in the Middle World within. A, 200 and, 50, 200 mile, 200, 250 mile
2: mile radius i think it was yeah
1: yes of of white wall which meant that there would be no rains coming down as long as this was happening which would mean uh, that there would be because also the goddess of Ele- ernaldo
0: as going to sleep would also
1: go to the underworld it means that you're you're going to have complete crop failures within this entire 250 mile radius. Nothing gets Every, born. Nothing gets born. Uh, it is horrible. It is a a a you know a year long famine, drought, uh,
2: winter. Disaster.
1: Yeah, year a year uh, long winter, year long drought, and a year long famine. And it would reach all the way out to the River of Cradles, which is completely yeah, go on, which is completely dependent upon Orlant's rain for um, water to come down that river.
2: So that's another really great example of uh, bringing a event that's happened elsewhere into this whole world type uh, type paradigm. So I had I had immense fun uh, writing up all the horrible things that happen <laughs> in the river cradles when the wind stop happens. An event that they know nothing about. It's just something that happens to them and they have to come up with their own ways of, uh, of reacting to that too. And the, the guide, this has got stuff that can happen all over the world in this way.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the all over the world there are the ripples... Um, of the Windstop and the dragon rise, And that's part of the reason that Dragon Pass gets to be... Uh, what was its, uh, the subtitle of the old Gennertella book? Dragon Pass, the Crucible of Crucible the Crucible
2: of the Hero Wars, yes.
1: And, and that's very much uh, what, with the new material, we really get to emphasize. And that, I think, is going to go a long way towards... Um, freeing up the setting because Mm -hmm. we've got this tremendous amount of of information now. You have an encyclopedia of where everything is, uh, who's where, you know, what is that for the year 1621, and we move it forward six years, and there are ginormous changes taking place, which, you know, if you're, you're a GM, that lets you draw on the unbelievably rich background of Glorantha
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it means that it's not a street jacket anymore
2: yeah so Jeff Glorantha uh, even going back 30, 40 years has always been a, uh, a collaborative process Greg has worked with uh, people that have wanted to share and engage the, in the world with him now, you've got Greg uh, at one remove because he's retired. Do you Is he still involved in the process in,
1: in any way? Yeah, well, I, I I talk regularly to Greg and I bounce, um, you know, I'll, when I have um, uh, a question about what I'm writing and I want to bounce around some ideas and try to figure out which has the most um, resonance with with. Greg's original I'll talk to Greg about it uh, we recently had that with figuring out uh, the answer to a thorny question in Argrath's future uh, history mm-hmm. uh, whether he the the question of his marriage to the feathered horse queen uh, and then to the queen of Hole and whether he had one wife or two oh. and Greg and I you know this Greg and I both agreed on the answer to that. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that I would talk to Greg about, because that's a, that addresses some, some potentially key thematic issues that he wanted to have in the setting. Uh, but more regularly, I think my the biggest collaborators I work with right now are you, um, uh, Harold Smith, Ian Cooper, uh, Dan McCluskey uh Rob um Rob hinzo and Jonathan Tweet, uh who are doing the thirteenth Age and material, David Dunham for his new computer game. A, a lot of people that have been on the show.
2: Fancy Sandy, that
1: <laughs> yeah. Sandy Peterson, uh even Ken Rolston. You know, all of these are these, these are people that um uh I take I get a lot of of input from uh nick brook um you know a lot of names that that uh if you're an old gloranthophile you'll recognize a lot of these names
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and and it's been as fertile a period on the the writing and uh bubbling forth of new ideas, I, it's been the most fertile period, I think, since the early 90s.
2: Oh, I totally agree. And and I think, as you say, it's the the liberation that comes with having this comprehensive Bible just sort of mapping out where things fit in, and having the freedom of this new timeline to take events forward, I think makes it a yeah. very powerful combination
1: yeah i it's one of the things that we've been working on um, uh, recently beyond uh, Sun County and New Pavis, which uh, I'm going for I, I'd like to wait for a later day before we go into what you've been working on in this in any great detail. Mm-hmm. But we've also been working uh, on uh, the lunar provinces a tremendous amount, and really thinking through how does the Lunar Empire work, not just when it's at the top of its game and it's conquered the world, but how does it function now that... Um,
2: oh, it, or uh, it doesn't yeah, function.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, this, is, this is a thing. In the presentation of the Lunar Empire in Glorantha Gaming... For the last thirty years, I mean, what, the Lunar empire has always been basically presented as this monolithic, unstoppable uh, force of infinite resources. Sort
2: of, of a sort of a Roman Empire at its peak type uh, analog in some ways.
1: Right, but by sixteen twenty-seven, that's definitely not the case. No, but it's uh, it's uh,
2: more a Byzantium in the seventh century type analog. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's lost um, overnight. It lost the entire provincial army, the Lunar College of Magic, um, uh, its entire governmental, uh, provincial governmental apparatus. I think, uh,
2: and I think, Jeff, the um, the 1628 edition of Who's Who <laughs> is a lot <laughs> shorter.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but you think about how many thousands. Of um, of the lunar elite, and especially the provincial elite, that just disappeared overnight with the Dragon Rise, and and here's the depressing thing: that was only one of three crises that the empire was dealing with at the same time, and that one was not considered the existential
2: crisis. <laughs> oh, yeah. <dear. laughs> Yes,
1: and and that's also been a really fun thing to, to play around with because now, you know, when when you and I are thinking about the Lunar Empire, it's not all powerful. It's a surprisingly fragile thing that that needs heroes um, of its own to be able to to basically survive, and I, I find that much more interesting. Than the lunars being a you know a gaggle of corrupt oppressors, you know of course there are corrupt oppressors within the lunar empire, but you know the story. There's only you know maybe it's because I'm not British,
0: but um, <laughs> you don't like corrupt empire.
1: <laughs> well, the the whole idea of of um, uh, gaming as a functionary of a corrupt empire has limited interest.
0: But that's the entire history. That's the entire history of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> that's cruel but fair, Rob. <laughs> I find it
1: much more interesting to have, you know, on the lunar side. You have real heroes. They're not. Ba- they're not just bad guys. There's bad guys and good guys within the lunar empire. Um, and the same thing is very true now with the um, with Sartar. You yes, know, because um, uh,
2: you you can't actually say that Argrath is just this shining, golden hero that can only do good.
1: No, I mean, Sartar, uh, Argrath has ordered... When he took New Pavis, he ordered the murder of every lunar. And when he got his hands on... Gim Gim the Grim, he ordered him drawn and quartered and his pieces cut into smaller pieces and scattered.
2: I think and, most people would say fair enough. Right,
1: <laughs> very true, very true. But that's not exactly a shining knight in uh, golden armor.
2: Absolutely. Uh, behavior. Well, he's he's and, a guy with an agenda and he's going to ruthlessly pursue it.
1: Yeah, and who's his his, um, his ace in Ace up the Sleeve Ally is Herrick the Berserk, also known as the Destroyer. Yeah, and he and he, he
2: kind of got that name for a reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean the the Sartorites are no longer the the um, the weak underdogs The plucky, are...
2: the plucky, resourceful underdogs. It's not asterisks and obelisk anymore.
1: No, it's now much more of... Uh, you know, I could make a better argument of Argrath is Daenerys Targaryen, come back to the throne, uh, come back to King's Landing. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this figure, she's got weird allies, she's got dragons, she's got uh, an <laughs> army of foreigners. Um, And... uh. Maybe she's the best of a bunch of bad um, options, but you know, I don't know what you would say in Game of Thrones, I don't think any of them stand out, uh, any of the living characters stand out as particularly noble uh, characters. And that's the same thing as the Hero Wars progressives. These guys are not. These guys are um... These guys are li- the, the the main figures are liminal figures between this world and the other world and and you know anybody who studies their their Greek mythology knows that heroes um, uh, are often not the nicest of people.
2: Yeah, and it's uh, we're, we're heading into a not particularly nice time. It's it's a bit like um, the Chinese saying, "May you may you live in interesting times" as a curse, and uh, the hero was are certainly going to be an interesting time.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and, and But for gaming, for computer games, for role-playing games, for writing stories, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful period because there's a lot of, of dramatic things going on, a lot of really horrible ways to fail. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: with With very dramatic consequences, if you do.
1: Exactly, with very dramatic consequences. There's, there's, there's war. There's magical change. There's this, there's, there's clear realization that that the end times are upon us. Um, and I find that from uh, a literary perspective, that's a lot more interesting than something that that is stagnant.
2: Well, for example, of... you know, the book isn't called. Um... Peace and peace, it's called war and peace, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. I mean, oh. conflict uh, conflict and change is, you know, that's that's the foundation of good stories.
0: Well, although it really should be called war, peace, and a really boring philosophical ending, to be, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I, I have to say I, I prefer Dostoevsky to this
2: Speaking of philosophical endings, we're going to have to wind up the podcast very soon, Jeff. We're we're drawing close to our to our hour. We could we could talk on and on about uh, the future history.
1: Wow, S- this one went fast. I just looked at the time. My gosh! Yeah, and the sun is back.
2: Oh, that's good. Well, well, well. Praise be that you can now see outside, and uh, and uh, the heavens have been restored. So, Rob. We're not going to end with our questions in this one because we've, we've run out of time, but I am going to throw to you anyway because you always like to end with a curly question.
0: Oh, well, I, I think I've got a couple of... Oh, well, uh, go well, for it, sir. I'll start out with an easy one. So um, the, the idea of uh, Glorantha came into um, Greg Stafford's head in 1966. Now, I was two years old in 1966, and I now have a grey beard. So, now, first of all, any... um any 50th anniversary plans for next year a lot a lot okay okay yes
1: um we will be doing quite we have quite a lot um of of work towards two big releases that would be 50 for the 50th anniversary okay yet speak of too much
0: Okay, well, we don't want to reprise the interview with David Dunham, where you know <laughs> he wouldn't reveal what was going to happen in the new computer game Six Ages. All
1: I can say is that if you've been around for a long time playing Glorantha, the, these are things getting these things back in print are things that um, were formative towards the creation of Glorantha. They are things that we have talked about in today's um, uh, episode. And I think these are things that, that, that really it will be lovely to be able to do in a beautiful, um, high-quality, uh, no stint on uh, the artwork and the, the quality of the materials mm. and the presentation. So, um, you know.
2: Which is which is a big um, move ahead from what it looked like 50 years ago. I'm thinking of like, say, um, the first edition of Apple Lane, for oh, example, with its computer yeah. printout.
0: <laughs> uh, now, no, sorry, yes. um, sorry, Jeff, Jeff set that up, and uh, you, you've uh, you, you've given me another go at this. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about 50 years ago. Is the audience for Glorantha are they all 50 year old people, or is the audience renewing itself? Are you getting young Glorantha fans coming in? We do get... We
1: we, we clearly are getting new fans. Now, Glorantha has an older um, audience. It has an older audience in part because I think, um, you know, it's just part of the the natural progression of what sort of stories and what sort of settings uh, you like um, changes as you grow older. I mean, I loved... I loved um, the Elric books when I was a teenager. They have not aged well, and in, in, in my opinion, um, I, I, as you know, my tastes—I I, wouldn't say that this is so much—they've matured. But things that were there, that were theme, that were great, awesome themes for me when I was a teenager in my early twenties are very different than in my thirties, forties, and. I'm not quite yet there, but um, when I'm in my 50s, I'm sure they'll change more as well. And Glorantha appeals, I think, more um, lopsidedly to people who have had a lot of experiences in their life. But we are definitely getting new people in, because there's a lot of... Younger people that like those things as well.
2: And and I can throw in there, uh, Jeff, for example, uh, Eternal Con, a convention that happens in Germany every year. Um, I am uh, very pleasantly surprised at uh, the youth of the people that are going to that con, and uh, also the gender balance. It's it's just about 50-50, isn't it?
1: Yes. 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 Um, like, e- 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 EternalCon is a great example. E- EternalCon had been, um, when as uh, tentacles, and then the first couple of years as EternalCon under a different management group, um, had been getting to be an older audience. And in the last several years, the Glorantha group has become a lot more 20-somethings than 30- uh, and 40-somethings. And the gender balance has gone from the normal gaming uh, 90% male, 10% female to close to 50-50.
2: And also, Jeff, the con t-shirts no longer just have to be sold in standard gamer XXXL. (laughs) Medium! Medium!
1: Not even large! Medium! Well, thank you guys, and I think... That wraps it up for another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. Tune in next week.
2: Thank you very much, and good night. Good night.
0: Good night. And that concludes another tale of Mythic Adventure, coming to you via download at mythicadventure.com and on iTunes. This was a Rabbit Hat production in association with Moon Design Publications. No ducks were harmed in the production of this podcast, But one duck was offended when our producer Rob took him out to lunch and asked for the bill.